For those of you who are new attendees at this lecture series, let me just say briefly uh, a word about its purpose. Um, not long after I became president, someone pointed out to me that we have on this campus literally every day of the week visitors from all over the world who are giving lectures about their work. And far too seldom do we have a chance to actually hear from our own faculty who are every bit as distinguished and who, from whom we have every bit as much to learn. And that was really the genesis of this lecture series. It's really a chance for the Princeton community to hear from our most distinguished faculty uh, and to get to know uh, what each other is doing. Uh, it is uh, my pleasure um, uh, to uh, have Susan as our lecturer today and to introduce her. Um, I have asked uh, her chair, her colleague, and a former president's lecturer, uh, professor of English, chair of the Department of English, Claudia Johnson. Claudia. Thank you. It is an enormous honor to introduce today's speaker, Susan Stewart, who joined our faculty in 2004, is a poet and a scholar of magnificent breadth and depth. To list her awards, much less actually earn them than she did, is itself a formidable task. In addition to receiving awards from the NEA, the Pew Foundation for the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundation, and oh yes, by the way, the MacArthur Foundation, she has served as the Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and she received an honorary, uh, an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And this is only a few of the many uh, honors she has uh, garnered. One of the things I most treasure uh, about Susan is that she is at one at the same time a very kind, modest, I even I mean, somewhat unassuming person. We have talked memorably, or me at least, about pruning shrubs, about jam, <laughs> about deterring groundhogs, a subject we disagree on. And we have watched with fascination as my dachshund dug a hole in the yard at our, our feet. And yet Susan is also mountainously high of brow. Her work <laughs> ranges over millennia and across diverse language traditions. She quotes from Euripides, Aristotle, Plato, Horace, Dante, ballads without known author, the English Romantic poets, Kant, Heidegger, Mandelstam, Pasternak, Borges, all with dizzying ease. Just as she also respects and is deeply fascinated by the deep powers of making of poesis in supposedly common things like nonsense or children's games. No one writes or thinks quite like Susan. We can tell this from the kinds of questions she poses in her essays uh, and in her poetry. Who else has remarked on the interconnectedness of poetry and meeting? Who else has thought about why it is that women only recently have become masters of the elegiac? Uh, in poetry. Who else has wondered why the Hebrew God in Genesis makes things happen sequentially rather than all at once? 
We've all learned that Adam was privileged by God to name all things. But who but Susan could show Adam proceeding alphabetically through his work of naming in this way? And I'll quote very briefly from her poem, The Names. Annis, bee, and cherry, dark, and egg, and free. Ghost, hand, and icicle, jinx, and kiss, and lee. Many, none, and other, pain, question, row, sadness, tree, unusual. X I signed, a yawn, and Z, and then I went to bed. (laughs) Only Susan would notice that the list of things Adam named would include adjectives, free, unusual. The title of Susan's talk this afternoon, which she assures me, and this is pure Susan, is completely self-evident, is The Ruins Lesson. Please join me in welcoming Susan Stewart. Thank you very much, Claudia. It's not, no accident that we're here in Friends Center together. And, and thank you for this wonderful opportunity, Shirley, for, to give this lecture. Um, I'm going to be talking about a project I haven't really in any way finished. I'm just beginning it in some sense. Um, but I'll talk for a little bit less than an hour. Um, are you able to hear me? OK, please tell me if you can't, because sometimes I give lectures and then people say, it was very good, but they couldn't hear me at all. So. <laughs> the Ruins Lesson. Ours is a civilization that locates itself in time and space by transforming nature and marking the earth. The flags we plant, the dwellings we build, the tombs we place, the permanent settlements and cities we found, all stand upright, in establishing our coordinates in line with those of rising and setting stars and recurring patterns of wind and weather. We yoke materials and plans and later stories of our making to the illusion of our permanence. How is it then that in the West, ruins, those surviving damaged vestiges of the built environment have become so significant? All things vanish in time, and our needs and desires aid in that vanishing. Whatever does not disappear back into formlessness through weather gives way as we tear down, destroy, or recycle the past to satisfy the demands of the present. Lime burners and bulldozers rarely sleep. Yet at least since late antiquity, poets, thinkers, artists, and sometimes emperors have brought an array of positive attitudes towards ruins. The elder Pliny and Pausanias looked on them with reverence and nostalgia, Frederick II incorporated their remains in his castles. Petrarch hoped to animate them. Francesco Colonna wove them into architectural fantasies. Raphael protected their inscriptions. Later 16th century painters, engravers, and poets in Antwerp, Prague, Florence, and Rome allegorized and dreamed over them. Antiquarians of the Enlightenment looked on them with both melancholy disenchantment and scientific curiosity. Romantic poets used them as scenes of writing. And revolutionaries and tyrants from Garibaldi to Mussolini have seen them as self-justifying grounds for claims to power. 
We seem to have a talent for imbuing ruins with meaning, yet those meanings change and remind us that the material is the empty ground of meaning, where meaning stops or hasn't yet started, and that there is little, if any, intrinsic relation between what signs are made of and what they have to say. As anomalies in the landscape of the present, ruins are the architectural equivalent of the syntactical anacoluthon, or non sequitur. They do not follow or proceed. They call for further reading and further syntax. Poised between the forms they were and the formlessness to which they are destined, these often massive and empty material structures are both over and underdetermined. They lose their original purposes and have the singularity of artworks, yet they are severed forever from their context of production. And in the present, they are fused almost always destructively with their immediate natural environments. They call for an active, moving viewer, often a traveler with a consciousness distinct from that of a local inhabitant, one who can restore their missing dimensions and names. Their most well-known student, the great 18th century Venetian and then Roman architect, engraver, and antiquarian Giovanni Battista Piranesi called them these speaking ruins. As we respond to ruins, we learn something about the value of human making and the place of our made world in the natural world. Derived from the Latin ruere, to fall or collapse, the word ruin is both a noun and a verb. As a noun, ruin refers to a fabric or being that is meant to be upright, but has fallen often headlong to the ground so that what should be vertical is horizontal. And speaking of that, those of you who are standing are welcome to come down the stairs and sit down, (laughs) kind of like Herms at the top of the stairs. Um, As a verb, ruin means to overthrow, destroy, or often in the case of a woman victim, to dishonor. Persons and things can be slowly ruined by suffering the depredations of use in ordinary weather. And in times of violence and extreme weather, they can be actively ruined, the latter an unusual subject for still visual images, but one we can find in this 1547 depiction of a collapsing Colosseum by Cornelius Anthony's. The scene alludes with the inscription at the upper right to the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 14. Sodom is only one of many cities in the Hebrew scriptures, including Babel, Tyre, Jericho, and A. I, condemned by their enemies or God for their disrespect, hubris, or violation of commandments. Such cities are raised to the ground or covered by the sea. The destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE by the Babylonians and the second temple in 70 AD by the Romans have become central to our imagination of ruins, as did eventually an account of a god born in a ramshackle stable and narratives from the book of Revelations of the world's destruction. Following on these biblical sources and classical accounts of the destruction of Troy, Corinth, and Carthage, English writers take up ruins as an important theme as early as the first Old English poems, or the ones we know as the first Old English poems. Indeed, a list of major poems in English from medieval fragments to Spencer's adaptations of Du Bellay, to Paradise Lost and Tintern Abbey, and on to the Wasteland is a list of works on ruination. Given these historical and legendary antecedents, and between Roman vestiges on the one hand and structures such as Stonehenge on the other, 
English writers often have imagined a host of giants and monsters, creators and destroyers alike, who erected enormous forms before they vanished. Poets of ruins return continually to the Ubisant theme and often praise the value of those skills of making that persist in traditions beyond made things themselves. We find these ruin motifs in several Old English poems, in the short elegy The Wanderer, fleetingly in some of the gnomic literature, and in a few passages in Beowulf that deal with the burial and recovery of the treasure of a dying race. Yet perhaps the best known example is the 50-line damaged fragment from the late 10th century Exeter book titled by later editors The Ruin. The work may refer to the Roman city of Bath, and it gives us some sense of what it was like for a northern people who built ephemeral structures from wood to encounter the great stone buildings and monuments of long-gone predecessors. And I'll just read this translation by Michael Alexander. Well wrought this wall, weirds broke it, the stronghold burst, snapped roof trees, towers fallen, the work of the giants, the stonesmiths moldereth. Rhyme scoureth gate towers, rhyme on mortar. Shattered the shower shields, roofs ruined, age under ate them. And the wielders and wrights, earth grip holds them, gone, long gone. Fast in graves grasp, while fifty fathers and sons have passed. Wall stood, gray lichen, red stone, kings fell often, stood under storms, high arch crashed, stands yet the wall stone, hacked by weapons, by files grim ground, shown the old skilled work, sank to loam crust. Mood quickened mind, and a man of wit, cunning in rings, bound bravely the wall base with iron, a wonder. Bright were the buildings, halls where springs ran, high horn gabled, much throng noise. These many mead halls, men filled with loud cheerfulness, weird changed that. Came days of pestilence, on all sides men fell dead. Death fetched off the flower of the people, where they stood to fight waste places and on the Acropolis ruins. Host who would build again shrank to the earth. Therefore are these courts dreary, and that red arch twisteth tiles, rieth from roof ridge, reacheth groundwards, broken blocks. There once many a man, mood glad, gold bright, of gleams garnished, flushed with wine pride, flashing war gear, gazed on wrought gemstones, on gold, on silver, on wealth held and hoarded, on light-filled amber. On this bright burg of broad dominion stood stone houses, wide streams welled hot from source, and a wall all caught in its bright bosom, that the baths were hot at Hall's hearth, that was fitting. Thence hot streams loosed, ran over the horse stone, unto the ring tank. It is a kingly thin city. Here the speaker carefully surveys features of, our, of the architecture, masonry, roofs, towers, gates, by recording how these structures crumble, molder, decay, and shed their parts. He brings just as much care to describing the growing natural forms, the hoarfrost and lichens that encroach upon these man-made structures and outlast them. And he adds a moral lesson by evaluating what has been lost, describing lost craftsmanship and dead craftsmen. The ruin gives testimony at once to their skill and their disappearance. 
In the end, the speaker fantasizes an ideal scene of wealth and splendor. Imaginary gems shine next to these real moldering stones. The speaker can only describe what is. What has been is a matter of conjecture. The cause of a ruin, even when merely imagined, is often neither evident nor singular. Ruined structures more often refer only metonymically to what has damaged them, and the contemplation of a ruin is particularly haunted by the hovering absence of this withdrawn force or forces. Troy suffered an earthquake in 1300 BCE, in addition to any fire and slaughter associated with Homer's epic. If we turn to Rome, the most well-known site of ruins and ruins imagery in the West, we find a similar complexity of causes. Even at the height of empire, small fires were common in the Forum. The earthquake of 62 and the great fire of 64 under Nero all wrought considerable damage. As the turn of the 20th century, Roman topographer and archaeologist Rodolfo Lanciani recorded in his lively and often polemical account of the destruction of Rome. It was the emperors who tore down the brick and wood Rome of the Republic to build their marble structures, and the Byzantine, medieval, and Renaissance Romans who destroyed imperial Rome. Barbarians and other invaders merely made off with what was portable. The Roman tradition of damnatio memoriae also modeled a kind of active ruin. It involved the destruction of all images of the person and the erasure of his name from all monumental inscriptions and was exercised by the Senate against enemies of the state. Domitian, last of the Flavian emperors, for example, suffered this fate, and although he may be exaggerating, Pliny the Younger claims Domitian was forced to watch statues of himself be destroyed. From the time of Constantine forward, a lively practice of spoliation also arose. The Arch of Constantine itself, for example, is a pastiche of ancient structures, its relief portraits made by scraping and replacing the existing faces with others. In some cases, we know ancient buildings only through their scattered fragments or surviving representations. This is Antonio or Antoine Lafrerie's engraving of the Septizonium, most likely drawn in the 1540s. The building once stood at the southern end of the Palatine, Pope Sixtus V set in motion its destruction in 1588 with Domenico Fontana overseeing the collection of the marble spoils. These were in turn scattered across the city and used in more than a building, I'm sorry, in more than a dozen building projects. The print with its inscription now bears witness to the monument's existence and disappearance at once. As we can see, construction projects created ruins as they made new potential ruins, and processes of ruination themselves reveal aesthetic patterns. Early 16th century Flemish drawings of the Colosseum, like this one by Hieronymus Koch from his 1551 Guide to the Monuments and Antiquities of Rome, show patterns of shadows from the exposed vaults that otherwise would not be visible. And this familiar network, the opus reticulatum of the brick curtain walls that once were hidden by marble facings, has become synonymous with our sense of the walls of Roman buildings. Conversely, through wind and weather, details like this egg and dart relief on this ancient entablature from Ostia become more abstract. When we speak of losing and saving face in relation to reputation, we capture something of this phenomenon. 
We cannot see our own deaths, and we also cannot, without access to some very high technology, gaze upon our own interiors. As early as Vincenzo Scamozzi's 1582 commentary on Cox Prince, we find the notion that a building is an analog for a human body. Scamozzi writes, the profile of a building is like the human anatomy, and he goes on to compare bones, nerves, and veins to the parts of ancient structures, describing the wearing down of the body until it is covered by what he calls the bark-like hard surface of the tomb. Yet ruins, like trees and tortoises, live before and beyond us, and thereby also resist our attempts to anthropomorphize them. The difficult truth that perception itself is unified only by acts of mind is exaggerated by the ruins' interruption of time and splitting of space. As Freud noted in Civilization and Its Discontents, what is past in mental life may be preserved and is not necessarily destroyed. He argues that only in the mind is such a preservation of all earlier stages alongside the final form possible. And he adds, we are not in a position to represent this phenomenon in pictorial terms. The closest we could come to such a representation of the surviving past, as Freud acknowledged, is a representation of a ruin. And although ruins may seem to possess what Freud's Viennese contemporary, the art historian Alois Riegel, described as age value, the value endowed by continuing in time, what endures in a ruin is not necessarily integral or intelligible. There is a difference between continuing in pristine condition and continuing in a process of decay. Our fascination with ruins therefore summons the platonic thought that all things being equal, value accrues as materiality wanes. And because all things are not equal, the monuments of Rome and Greece are of greater significance than the flattened sites of, say, Baalbek, Palmyra, and Carthage. There must be a there there. Geography, proximity to centers of art and culture, and constant reinterpretation all can contribute to the long-term preservation of ruins in actuality and legend. Consider, for example, the fate of the Colosseum as the monument at the center of that Rome to which all roads lead. Built on the site of the lake at the Domus Aria, Nero's house, the Colosseum was begun in 72 and financed by booty from the war in Judea that included the destruction of the Second Temple two years before. In turn, the Colosseum itself has served as both treasure chest and quarry. In ruins iconography, the structure is continually linked to the Tower of Babel, most famously in Peter Bruegel's The Elders, two 1563 paintings on the topic. This one is now in Vienna, and this is the Rotterdam painting. These paintings perhaps inspired prints such as this one from the early 17th century studio of Jan Landerziel. The story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 emphasizes the invention of building with bricks. It indeed reverses the celebration of brick buildings that we find in the folktale of the three little pigs. <laughs> Speaking one language, the men of the plain of Shinar say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. As they seem to have predicted, 
God objects to this hubris and both confuses their language and does scatter the men in all directions. Thus, whereas Sodom is destroyed by brimstone and fire raining from the heavens and Jericho is brought down by trumpets and fire, the Tower of Babel is not destroyed, but rather simply not finished. Landerzeel's image emphasizes, as Bruegel does, and the story in Genesis does not, the figure of God's challenger, the giant and hunter Nimrod, king of Shinar, who you can see there on the left with his little posse. The carts we see at the center could be carrying either building supplies or archaeological fragments. This seeming paradox, the hiatus where construction looks like ruination and ruination like construction, is emphasized as well by this drawing that Koch's friend Martin Van Heemskerk, another prominent draftsman, engraver, and painter of ruins made of, his, of the construction of the new St. Peter's in 1536. The engravers of Harlem and Antwerp in the mid-16th century were well aware of the history of the Colosseum and legends of Babel. They knew, too, that buildings in the Roman Forum, such as the Temple of Peace, were financed by and may have housed loot of the Judean War. They were themselves in the thick of controversies about iconoclasm, religious freedom, and the protection and building of churches. Van Heemskerk had arrived in Rome in the early 1530s when memories of the sack were still fresh, and he, in fact, made this engraving of the sack. And he later issued a popular series of prints narrating stories of the disasters of the Jewish people that ended with images of the destruction of the Second Temple. The theme of the war in Judea indeed seems to haunt the entire history of ruins images all the way to Bartolomeo Pinelli's depiction of Roman soldiers destroying the temple here, an image that was made during the second French occupation from 1809 to 1814 as Napoleon's soldiers and archaeologists undertook a program of wildly plundering and reordering Roman monuments. The viewer of ruins on the scene is also mindful of the subtle disintegration brought about by the more gentle powers of nature, the vegetation that is slowly splitting and wearing away the forms of earth and stone. As the poet of the ruin noted, vegetation, and in his native north, lichens and hoarfrost or rime, are not merely ornaments in depictions of ruins. And in a Mediterranean climate, where any kinds of plants spring up in the limey soil and crevices of ruins. In the winter of 1818, Percy Shelley described walking through the Colosseum as like traversing an amphitheater of rocky hills overgrown by wild olives, myrtles, and figs. He wrote, A copsewood shadows the walker as he passes through wild weeds and flowers and green beneath his feet. And four years later, Byron described the same spot in Child Harold's pilgrimage and wrote of the Colosseum as a garlanded forest. Lanciani describes in a footnote that he has found in the forum entire elex oaks and fig trees with four-inch thick trunks growing through cracks in masonry. In antiquity, the forum's three sacred plants were fig, olive, and grape. But archaeologists have found many kinds of seeds and plants there at various layers, including some from North Africa. Today, you can find wild chives, broom, rocket, dandelion, amaranth, and crabgrass growing everywhere. And if we compare printed images of the Pyramid of Cestius, for example, these by Egidio Sadler from 1606, 
This is the east side of, of the pyramid. And Piranesi's 1756 etching, with, and then look at photographs of the same structure today. We're st- we are struck by the continuity of not only this manifested geometrical form, but also the eternal return of its vegetation. Georg Zimmel wrote in 1911 that the ruin was an artificial form on its way to becoming a natural one. And such thoughts do arise in the presence of ruins and ruins images. Yet the moment of viewing a ruin hovers between the not then and the not yet. As neoclassical forms often emphasize, the vegetative aspects of architectural ornament decay as the fossilization of natural life proceeds at its slow but inexorable pace. In the West, we've also associated ruins with fertility, creativity, and sexuality in a number of ways. On the one hand, we link them to gardens and to watery and fiery legends of nymphs, virgins, and virgin springs. Here, for example, is what remains of the latest incarnation of the House of the Vestal Virgins in the Forum. And on the other, we associate ruins with illicit sex and romance. The Latin word fornix, meaning an arched or vaulted chamber and later a bake oven, became the term fornication as prostitutes solicited their customers beneath such vaults. This practice perhaps explains the elusive narrative at work in this 1561 etching in the Colosseum recesses by Battista Pitoni. Here, as you can see, a man with a sword is pulling a woman by the hair and in the far right, a couple seemed to have their erotic encounter interrupted. Richard Lascelles, an English Roman Catholic priest and traveler in Rome in the 1640s, described a tradition of prostitution in the fornices of the Circus Maximus. In the 1760s, Diderot more romantically suggested that love is most freely and imaginatively experienced in a ruin where one feels part of the scene. And Edith Wharton pursues a similar theme in her witty late novella of 1934, Roman Fever, which I'm sure many of you know. An absent or withdrawn cause, an inverse relation between materiality and meaning, the reinscription of often incommensurable beliefs upon the same material base, an emphasis upon fertility and the reproduction of images, transformations of perspective, experiences of parallel temporality, All of these dimensions of the first-hand experience of ruins have played a part in the development of representations of ruins. Though they lack integrity and present an overabundance of particulars, ruins have had an extraordinary influence upon the development of Western art. Indeed, as the unmade, the anarchitectural, they have served as a paradoxically inspiring counterpoint to processes of representation. We respond to their silence with speech, to their transparency with density, to their decay with fantasies of animation and renewal, and in the end, to their fragmentation with artistic holes. Inscribing ruins with one's own name dates at least to the 17th century practice of Pietro della Valle at Persepolis, where you also can read on the Great Gate the names of 19th century British adventurers. But inscriptions in literature and visual art begin to take their cue as well from ancient practices of inscription. Gaps in time call for a supplemental speech or voice. In the sonnet tradition, inscription emerges in the use of closing aphoristic lines as a kind of written pediment 
to the twists and turns of earlier lines that often imitate speech. In visual art, inscription involves writing or carving into the scene, a practice in a practice of trompe l'oeil develops since Roman ruined buildings, especially Roman ones, often already come with inscriptions. An inscription on an image of an inscription authenticates the present and reads the past in a process akin to punning. Let's look, for example, at this convention as it developed around the title pages of collections of ruins images. For by the 16th century, in addition to single sheets, printmakers often group prints and bound them in folios for perusing. Here's a little gallery of title pages where the book functions as a series of inscriptions, and inscription becomes the cover of a ruin. First, the title page for the print that you just saw, the 1575 edition of Petoni's prints, which are based on Cox's um, Guide to Rome's Ruined Antiquities and Monuments. Then, this is Egidio Sadler's 1606, Vestiges of the Antiquities of Rome, Tivoli, Pozzuolo, and other locations. Here is the second edition of Piranesi's Carceri, or Prisons, from 1745. It's interesting that Piranesi often makes a point that he's an architect um, while he's being an engraver. This, uh, and this is the 1778 title page to his Vedute, the views of Rome that he began in, 17, in 1740s. And this is a corner of the great title page of this, uh, that comes with the 1764 folio prints representing the ruins of the palace of Domitian, I'm sorry, of Diocletian at Spilatro or Split by Piranesi's protege, Robert Adam. It has a trompe-l'oeil crack and a trompe-l'oeil slab, as you can see. In other prints, Adam explores what we might call a then-and-now punning theme with great visual wit, as in this detail from his plate of the Temple of Asclepius, where he juxtaposes images of living and stone horses. By the late 18th century, a similarly punning practice of proleptic ruination develops somewhere between playfulness and dread. Considering ancient ruins, the Comte de Volny envisioned the ruins of buildings by the Thames and the Seine. Here is Hubert Robert's view of a proposed new gallery of the Louvre and a projection of the Louvre in ruins, both from 1796. This is a Joseph Gandhi watercolor of the Bank of England Rotunda from 1798. Maybe you can see the clock registers that it's 1017 in the morning. And here is his corresponding imaginary rendering of the Bank of England in ruins from the same year with the light flooding in from the opposite direction. To read a ruin, we may move ourselves horizontally or vertically. But as we saw in the Old English poem, the ruin turns us back in time to its hidden origin. For poets, including Spencer, Shakespeare, Milton, and John Dyer, ruins continue to be occasions to think about the relationships between transience, permanence, and power as they compare the strength of man-made forms, including poems, to the powers of nature or the gods. Shakespeare claims famously in Sonnet 55, Not marble nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme, but you shall shine more bright in these contents than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time. 
When wasteful war shall statues overturn and broils root out the work of masonry, nor Mars his sword nor war's quick fire shall burn the living record of your memory. Against death and all oblivious enmity shall you pace forth. Your praise shall still find room, even in the eyes of all posterity that wear this world out to the ending doom. So, till the judgment that yourself arise, you live in this and dwell in lovers' eyes. Human praise that lives in memory offers an alternative enduring space to the wreckage brought by violence, time, and the tired eyes of the world weary. Unswept, wasteful, quick, oblivious, Shakespeare's flow of adjectives of destruction is vividly counterposed to notions of dwelling, posterity, and the living records of memory and lovers' estimations. Yet it is the evidence of overturned statues, broken masonry, and fire that seems to prompt Shakespeare's claim for poetry as having certain immaterial privileges. The poem is propped up on the particular features of the ruin. Whooshing sounds of wind tumble in sharp contrast to the passages of Spondee's, you shall shine more bright, and the reverse syntax of shall you pace forth. The sound of all appears in nearly every line until we arrive at the slant rhymes till and dwell. To live and dwell in a totally ruined world are not mean accomplishments. If, as readers have often noted, there's almost nothing about the you praised in this poem, we do learn something of the connection between being content, as praised lovers might be, and having contents, as poems do and ruins do not. It is indeed far more difficult to represent a person than to represent a ruin. Ruins do not move, and despite Anthony's lively collapsing Colosseum, their changes rarely take place within the frame of observing them. Yet ruins are, in visual art as well, often peopled. Unlike monuments and the tombs they may contain, ruins often indeed are sites of dwelling. Thus, in 16th century Dutch and Italian prints of Roman ruins, we often find visual representations not only of ruined structures, but also of figures in the presence of ruins, as we do here in Pitoni's etching of workers traversing the Palatine, as two more contemplative figures are framed in the right distance. I hope you can see them. Um, so what are human and occasionally animal figures doing in these ruins' images? An obvious answer is that they are establishing the terms of scale, yet such figures are often exaggeratedly small, hence amplifying their architectural frames. We find in these images instructions as to how to behold ruins and what to do in their presence. We see figures stopping to view ruins or not, going about their business and ignoring them. Even in the earliest ruins prints, figures of labor, shepherds, workmen like these carrying tools, Soldiers on patrol, washerwomen and servants are juxtaposed to figures of leisure, students, artists, and curiosity seekers. We indeed may wonder whether printmakers and poets saw themselves as standing on the labor or leisure side of this split. Poets usually work alone under the patronage of an aristocracy. Printmakers are involved in the commerce of their own work and typically share tools and materials. Piranesi's daughter, Laura, for example, signed her own engravings at times with her literary first name and at others with the punning name, Lavora, or She Works. 
Viewers of ruins often are depicted making an effort to represent, or we might infer to understand, their environments. Beyond imposing one's signature directly on a ruin, drawing ruins from a distance is a way of testifying to their existence and understanding them in context. Draftsmen often draw themselves sketching ruins as a device of authentication. Here are two images from Pitoni's guide. In the first, this one, someone is drawing the Colosseum. And in this second view, several figures are beholding the Colosseum while another draws the scene. Other draftsmen and printmakers suggest how to read amid ruins, raising questions about how to narrate and read history, history in general, as we can see from an image nearly 300 years later, Pinelli's title page to his 1829 edition of his History of the Emperors of Rome. As ruins open to new perspectives, artists who depict them revel in plays of perspective as well. From a worm's eye view, as in this 1734 frontispiece to Piranesi's first independent book, his first part of Architecture and Perspective, where tiny figures crawl over the inscription that seems to be lodged in a ruined wilderness, to a bird's eye view in Piranesi's print of the Colosseum from his 1776 edition of the Vedute. The ruin's apparent transparency, its turned inside out state of things, reveals the paradox of transparency itself. The more we notice transparency, the more it becomes opacity. And the more ruin is marked with letters and numbers to clarify its parts, the more it seems a two-dimensional thing. Clearing away the shadows of a ruin is a way to make it measurable, as in these engravings from Antoine de Godet's 1682 Ancient Buildings of Rome. The subtitle is drawn and measured very exactly. You can see in these images that a pure architectural scheme begins to grow vegetation. In contrast, deepening the shadows of ruins and showing them in weather is a way to make them theatrical and project upon them human scenes when their human makers and dwellers are gone, as in these images by Piranesi. First, this is the Forum, and here is the Tomb of the Plautai from the late 1760s. In prints of ruined opus cementitium projects, Two-dimensional images are not a matter of describing surfaces, but rather representing great volumes by means of light and shadows. An interior becomes an exterior, and an exterior is broken into an interior. We can see this especially in a print like this of the famous nymphaeum that's called mistakenly, in here also called mistakenly by Piranesi, the Temple of Minerva Medica. Of course, sophistication and perspective views was tied in the West to the archaeological rediscovery of Roman illusionist painting. And in representations of ruins, we see that perspective, the perspective grid, is what binds the ruin image as surely as scaffolding binds a collapsing building. Clouds and vegetation, which do not require the use of perspective lines, inevitably seem to serve as the counterpoint and complement to images organized around planes and vanishing points. Speculating on ancient, ancient art in the 1750s and 1760s, Johann Wickelmann claimed that color contributes to beauty, but it is not beauty. Color should have a minor part in the consideration of beauty because it is not color, but the structure that constitutes its essence. 
Perhaps this is why paintings of ruins with their relatively broad areas of tone and light are not as common as prints of ruins with their details and drawn lines of varying densities. But the deep connection between ruins and printmaking may lie in the fact that printmaking itself is a process of ruination. Using an etching needle, burin, or other device to cut an image into wood, copper, tin, or stone, printmakers work in not only unidirectional lines, but also feathering, stippling, and cross-hatching techniques that imitate effects of weather and geology. The printmaker then, as we say, bites the surface with acids and works as well with water and inks made of vegetable compounds. In the end, the printmaker inscribes a mineral surface with meaning and form. He or she uses many of the same processes that have resulted in the case of ruins in erasure. And the production of images depends, of course, on the ruin of the plate. Shifts of perspective and narratives of decay and fertility can also be worked on the level of theme. Images of ruins become commonplace as early as the late 15th century in nativity scenes. In this 1504-1505 woodcut by Albrecht Dürer from his series on the life of the Virgin, thatch or hay has been destroyed by weather, vegetation sprouts in broken walls made of brick, and a section is cut away to reveal the new dispensation. The ruined structure is wood-framed, and the grain of wood has been worked here to make the relief. That this is a scene from the life of a god who is a carpenter in a line of carpenters and divine makers is only underscored by this ruined frame. Benedetto Montagna's holy family on the shore of approximately a decade later clearly employs an image of a Roman arch and brick ruins. And here is a late 16th century nativity from the Calcographica in Rome that emphasizes the break in the far wall of the vanishing point. Ruins are where new forms are born. The fecundity of the bare ruin also is manifested in the multiplication of images, copies, allusions, and other forms of appropriation and borrowing. Koch and Van Heemskerk seem to have at times copied and printed each other's drawings. For example, this print is signed by, I can get it to go there. This print is signed by Koch in 1552. You can see the date there. But the figure on the left, that sort of St. Jerome-looking fellow, is looking at an open book where the words Martinus van Heemskerk are scrawled across the pages. Prints also served as backgrounds to other prints, as in the relation between van Heemskerk's 1532 etchings of the form of Nerva and his depiction of uh, Satan smiting Job with boils from 1548. And as we have seen, Petoni's prints often are just reverse copies of Cox's prints. Prints were also continually circulated, reprinted, and republished. An edition in the 16th century might run in the hundreds, and Piranesi famously tried to pull 4,000 sheets out of his single plates. When we consider that Piranesi also often took his images from other prints and not from life, a fact we can discern from the ways the copied images so often shows up in reverse, it becomes clear that the mechanical reproduction of images increases the storehouse of images for other artworks. Whereas engravings and etchings often were made from paintings, it's just as true that painters often took their images from prints. By the mid-18th century, engravers are as interested in what is not there 
as in what is there. Traveling antiquaries, including Robert Wood and other members of the Society of Dilettanti, and later Byron, for example, dressed in Turkish and other forms of native costume, perhaps out of practicality or perhaps in a fantasy of time travel. Entering the scene was also the focus of a new kind of art criticism that Diderot introduced in his Salon of 1767. As he meditated on the ruined paintings of Hubert Robert, Indeed, Diderot suggested that Robert should remove images of ordinary people from his paintings and introduce only meditating, melancholy figures such as himself. <laughs> the capricci and fantasies of Piranesi stem from his training in stage design in Venice as a young apprentice, but also simply seem to show his sense of humor and restlessness. Thus, this 50, 1756 frontispiece to the second volume of his Antiquities of Rome is a fantasia of the Appian Way, packed with obelisks, urns, and tablatures, and tombs. And if you look closely, you can find his own imaginary tomb on the right, and below the she-wolf on the left, a tomb for the uh, still much, very much living Scottish antiquaries, Robert Adam and Alan Ramsey. Such images can be said to have a thematic and phenomenal cause rather than, say, a technological one alone. The experience of ruins led not only to innovations in printmaking, but as a recent exhibition in Rome has explored, to the founding of art academies largely based on sketching and copying ancient structures and fragments. And poets did not describe, explain, or contemplate ruins without becoming deeply involved in worries about the permanence or impermanence of their own creations. English poets of this period especially, at the height of what is sometimes called the ruin craze, are often directly concerned with the ruins of Rome and those Gothic ruins of monasteries, abbeys, and churches that had been dissolved by the 1540s. By the mid-18th century, the buildings of the Roman church dotted the English landscape with great skeletal forms. In 1772, Henry Hume, Lord Kames, made a rather sharp distinction between the lessons of Christian and pagan ruins. Whether should a ruin be in Gothic or Grecian form, he asked, deciding in the former, I think, because it exhibits the triumph of time over strength, a melancholy but not unpleasant thought. A Grecian ruin suggests rather the triumph of barbarity over taste, a gloomy and discouraging thought. <laughs> Wordsworth, of course, explored this theme in much of his work, perhaps most prominently in his lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, 13 July, 1798, a title, of course, most often abbreviated as Tintern Abbey. Despite Wordsworth's distaste for popular prints, his long poem is replete with techniques and perspectives borrowed from ruins prints such as this one, of the same subject published in 1782 by the foremost proponent of the picturesque, the Reverend William Gilpin. In Tintern Abbey, Wordsworth emphasizes repeatedly that he is working with lines and impressions, describing little lines of sportive wood and the wild green landscape. He presents what he calls a picture of his mind, a memory, even if, as he claims, he cannot paint what then he was. Yet as he matured, Wordsworth went well beyond such an ekphrastic response. He studied the psychological apprehension of ruined structures, from local huts to Trajan's column. 
explored the co-presence of Druid and Roman ruins in the English landscape, and narrated the pathetic stories of those wanderers and vagrants whose lives were ruined by violence and disenfranchisement in the wake of the Industrial Revolution and war. As in Tintern Abbey, with his repeated visits to the Wye Valley, Wordsworth often contemplates successive, revising views in a single work. This small fragment, titled Incipient Madness, dating most likely to 1797, as well appears in a slightly longer version that includes a second visit to the scene he describes. Then building from these lines, Wordsworth placed this fragment in his longer poem, The Ruined Cottage. He then wove The Ruined Cottage into an even longer poem, The Peddler. Then he separated the two works for a time before joining them again in 1803-1804 within an even longer poem, The Excursion, a poem he intended to fold into what he imagined would be his final work, The Recluse. So this little 13-line version on the screen is an incomplete sonnet, yet incipient madness is also a kind of poetic spolia, a fragment repeat, repeatedly placed within larger, unfinished structures. I crossed the dreary moor in the clear moonlight. When I reached the hut, I entered in, but all was still and dark. Only within the ruin I beheld, at a small distance, on the dusky ground, a broken pane, which glittered in the moon and seemed akin to life. There is a mood, a settled temper of the heart, when grief become an instinct, fastening on all things that promise food, doth like a sucking babe create where it is not. From this time that speck of glass was dearer to my soul than was the moon in heaven. Well, a great deal could be said about this fragment, but let's focus on only two words. One is only, only in only within the ruin I beheld, and it in grief become an instinct, fastening on all things that promise food, doth like a sucking babe create where it is not. Wordsworth indeed invites us to focus at a smaller and closer range. An adult perspective becomes an infant's, a broken pane becomes a speck of glass, before scaling up to the moon in heaven as the counterpoint to that speck. Only functions both as the exception to stillness and darkness, for the ruin turns out to contain a glittering that is akin to life, and as the necessary condition for beholding such a simile, it grammatically modifies promised food. Yet because it is the vanished referent of the babe's sucking, the word also implies the continual exercise of the imagination in the absence of a referent, the experience of what is not. It is a mood that the instinct feeds upon. Only in a ruin do we experience with such intensity the possibility of making meaning out of meaningless material. In sum, the long duration of ruins as they survive the gesture of force that shaped them has become a model for the artwork as the most enduring of made things, waiting to be received by one generation after another. Yet poets and artists of ruins also give us a sense not only that the material resists meaning, but also that materiality at times cannot bear up under a surplus of meaning, that what seems to have been finished has not yet met its day, and that form cannot express everything it is and has been, especially once it loses its finality. These aspects of the ruin are tied to the inherent violence of all representation, 
which reifies or fixes its object, making live things dead and bringing dead things to life. Those of us in the humanities are fond of asking, like the professional gamblers we are not, what are the stakes? So what are the stakes or insights that the study of the Western experience of ruins and representations of ruins might yield? Henry James considered the contemplation of ruins a heartless pastime. But such contemplation does raise a number of significant questions, questions of form, meaning, and ethos, if not ethics. These poems and images intervene in our common frames for thinking of the history of organic and mechanical means of reproduction, and they contribute to our understanding of certain formal predilections. Ruins images often begin in multiples and evolve towards singular works in a progression from drawings and prints to paintings and from poem fragments to, at times, unfinished holes. And our taste for sketches, broken lines, sejuras, fragment poems, collage, and more recently, earthworks and works made by explosions all strike me as in a pattern of descent from this ruins tradition. The representation and repetition of fragmentation alleviates the problem of vanished cause and sets aside certain problems of agency and formal integrity. The study of ruins and ruins images also reveals how deeply our hermeneutic vocabulary is, as Freud understood very well, indebted to archaeological and architectural terms. We do not have to be devotees of deconstruction to claim that we dig below or scratch the surface, open meanings, explore depths, follow or clear paths, reveal underpinnings and underlying structures, or peel away a mere rhetoric and ornament, etc. Are these spatial models of hidden or damaged meaning in some way leading us away from a deeper and yet perhaps less esoteric, esoteric dimension of the relation our understanding has to time? And if we believe an unconscious is buried somewhere within us and that what arises from the past is a desire about the future, we would have to also have to ask ourselves why we are so captivated by ruination. Why, for example, do we have an economic system based in so-called creative destruction? And why do we often find uninhabited spaces and structures more beautiful than inhabited ones? Nature is no longer the backdrop to man-made things. The man-made world has become the backdrop for things of nature. Will we bear witness to the ruined forms of the natural world with the same aesthetic pleasure and equivocation with which we look on these ruins images, so often ruins of those religions and cultures that are not our own? Or do we, in fact, intuit that the ruin of nature will also mark the end of representation? If so... Perhaps instead we will discover in this history, as Wordsworth did, something ephemeral that is both significant and beautiful, something akin to life that leads us on to life. Thank you. constructive criticism. <laughs> <laughs> Especially constructive. Yeah. yeah, constructive criticism, exactly. Questions? 
So maybe I can begin, <laughs> okay. given everyone is shy. Um, as I was thinking about the, the ruins that you were depicting, the thought that kept going through my mind is, is whether there is a hierarchy of ruin in the sense hmm. of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. why, why, why was the Colosseum mm -hmm. such an extraordinary magnet for people contemplating ruin? And would, would um, a, a ruined hut, mm -hmm. you know, sort of built of just simple materials with no uh, other significance or no aesthetic meaning, could it become a, an equally powerful uh, symbol mm -hmm. for um, artists and poets? Yes, I mean, I, I think there are lots of reasons why the Colosseum became so important. I mean, first of all, it's really, really big. So, <laughs> so, I mean, so this is the drama of having something destroyed that is of such enormity, and of course it comes saturated with so much history and so many legends. And if you're going to be meditating on the theme of empire, it of course makes a great example of that. Um, and then the intersection of the Tower of Babel, I think, is why uh, it goes in that direction. Um, it also, I, I think there's a, uh, this issue of, with these mammoth ruins, of, of being able to walk around it and being able to walk around it and get it back at a certain distance so that you can see it. So I didn't talk about this, but being able to see something from a viewpoint or a distance makes it significant or, and suitable for uh, visual art, certainly. That your question is really, to my mind, very closely tied to this great innovation of Wordsworth, which was to think about the whole uh, experience of ruins and to, I mean, of course, you know, the Senate first met in an Etruscan hut, so the ruined huts that he saw in the landscape, the way he uh, thinks about vagrants going across Salisbury Plain, there's no division there in this continual history. And it's been, uh, you know, I, I'm working in a very ahistorical way in some senses, and, but I think that the connection to Wordsworth and to the Romantics is important um, as a model here. Another interesting figure I didn't talk about is Blake, because Blake actually had a collection of old master prints and apparently owned some Van Heemskirks, but he sold them because uh, he needed money late in life, so I don't know what he had. It would be, and that's something I'd like to, to do some more work on now. Thank you. Hal, hello. Susan, that was beautiful. What motivates the uh, the whole long-term interest in ruination, or uh, oh, dissent? I'm sorry, I thought you were saying D E S C E N T, not D I S S E N T. No, no. Well, I just I think that when you become a first of all, it's just a methodological question. Becoming really absorbed in a tradition like this, I feel I need some kind of critical distance on it. Um, but also, there is a continual um, emotion of melancholy at work, uh, which verges on narcissism, of course, uh, in various ways. I mean, you think about Goethe posing before the uh, tomb of Cecilia Metella, or um, the, 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 there's always this kind of uh, snapshot-like backdrop to the subject in this tradition. And 
I didn't want to just fall into describing it, which puts you back in the position of being in the scene and, uh, and sketching it. Um, so I'm interested more largely in why, what, what is the pleasure of destruction? Uh, and why is it that in the West, art is so much tied to these issues of illumination, both in, in processes of making and also in, in the theme? And what might be alternative uh, aesthetic experiences to that? Did I, well, yes. Well, um, I, I'm wondering at the very end of, of your talk, you also seem to uh, uh, gesture significantly towards a sort of environmentalist mm -hmm. uh, ethos, uh, as, in other words, uh, ruins of nature as opposed to uh, art artificial uh, ruins of artifice. So I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you could just expand on that a little bit. Well, I, it's just, it, it's again part of this issue of the descent. I mean, I, I think that. Um, you know, our model from Hegel and others of making in Western culture has to do with resting forms out of nature. Um, and we don't really need more stuff. <laughs> and one of the questions that many artists are concerned with and that interests me a great deal is what kinds of art might be beautiful but also ephemeral and enter into a deeper relationship to nature than the agon with nature. Um, and of course, there are many world traditions where that happens, uh, where there isn't that agon. So... Um, I think the ruins tradition is part of the Agon, but maybe also part of something else in, in Wordsworth and others, this idea of the emergence of um, some uh, organic thread or some kind of continuous process of renewal uh, through, through these uh, ruined forms. Yeah. Um, are, are I following people or what? <laughs> Well, this is tremendously complicated. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I think we would uh, find it so, but there's, there, of course, are museums of the atomic blast, but we would consider it something obs somewhat obscene to find the ruins of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, picturesque. Um, whereas the people of Coventry decided to preserve uh, the ruined cathedral next to their rebuilt cathedral. This is a tremendously complicated question, and I don't think it's only a modern one. It's one of great interest um, uh, to Wordsworth, part of, and, and, um, and also, of course, to Shelley. I mean, it's part of the discourse against tyrants to be against monumentalization in, the, uh, in romantic poetry. Um, and the ruin becomes a counter-discourse to, um, to the monument. But as you point out, a ruin could be made into a monument by certain kinds of sacralizing gestures. I mean, monuments are also, of course, always tied from the beginning to tombs, um, so that even though people, you know, after the fall of Rome, people were living in the ruins of Rome, you know, the, of course, it's why it's the, the cow field, the forum was a cow field, but, um, but people don't live in tombs uh, unless they in some way have been uh, purified of, of, of their contents. 
Luci Ale knows a lot about that. If you want to talk to someone here, about it. <laughs> I, I, I can't see who. Do you have a question? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Ruins don't have attached to them a sense of melancholy, which is really very old. And I was thinking of uh, the whole joys have vanished, all glory is dead. We commend linger possessing the world, the old English elegy. Mm -hmm. But then I don't like that idea of melancholy because I think they also have an existential quality. Because mm -hmm. we can look at a ruin and ask ourselves, is this what we're headed toward? Mm -hmm. So I don't know how you fit the emotional mm -hmm. side into mm -hmm. that. Well, those interest me a great deal, and I think you're right. They're ancient. There's there's some very interesting new work about Pausanias and his nostalgia and melancholy uh, during his travels. Um, so I don't think that these are uh, necessarily romantic ideas or 18th century ideas at all. Um, and, and I do think that even though I warned against anthropomorphizing ruins, we do see some very deep connection between the ruination of things we make and the ruination of our own selves. Um, yeah, Stanley. Um, we heard uh, earlier this week in the German department that uh, talked about Jurgen uh, in Rome. Mm, oh, great. I'm sorry I missed that. inspired really by what I learned there and what I really meant about what I learned today. But what was compelling was, uh, was the tomb, the tombs, right? Uh, that figure in the drawing that was what a reconstruction Was that the cock with the... Oh, oh, that's the Fantasia on the Appian Way of Piranesi, right. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh-huh. I better answer that question really quickly. <laughs> um, I think it's true. I mean, this is exactly Scamozzi's discourse on the um, connection between human anatomy. I mean, I'd wonder whether, I'd be curious to know whether Goethe had access to it. Um, and actually, the famous portrait of Goethe in front of the tomb of Cecilia Metella is right there on the Appian Way. So, I, you know, the, all of these things seem to, to crystallize. But I do think that 
it intrigues me, and this is going to be a terrible generalization, maybe Chris Hoyer can help me from, keep me from making it, but um, I don't think that the vanitas motif is very important in ruins. I mean, I mean it's the vanitas of nations, oh, sorry, the vanitas of, of larger entities, but um, the contemplation of a skull, you would think, would be more frequent in ruins imagery than it is. Uh, but that also has to do with other things I didn't talk about and should have talked about, like conventions of landscape painting and genre painting and um, you know, the cold panoply of art historical conventions that are at work. Because it's hard to have uh, an interior uh, image of a ruin. Uh, there's no interior. Well, I think Sarah, I mean, you know, Sarah, I actually have written about that very <laughs> situation in Sarah's work. I mean, I, th- I think with Sarah, the interesting thing is it's also hard to get away. It's hard to get back. I mean, if you get back, you see the geometry. If you get close, you know, you're, you're in, in the form. So I think that's interesting for thinking about how to represent ruins because, um, you know, we have to draw ruins from a vantage point. Uh, and Sarah ingeniously has mobilized all of the possible vantage points, including the tactile um, uh, against the visual in various ways. I mean, there are lots of other examples, like uh, Smithson's ruins of, of, of that, that are very nearby um, would, would be, I think, uh, an intriguing case for thinking about the possibility of making new ruins. But, you know, this is a place where Regal is right. I mean, you can't uh, bestow age value. Age value happens over time. Um, but you can bestow a discourse on age value that's quite intriguing and, and complex. Uh, that's how distress genres you know, work, where you have fake antiques or you try to make old, new ballads that look like old ones, etc. Yes. Sorry, I was... The, the talk that just made me reflect on uh, children's books where ruins play a really magical role. There are sometimes avenues to the past. Children investigate a ruin and get sent back to that time. Hmm. But they just become places of great fantasy for children. Hmm. And it's just a thought. It sounds intriguing. I don't know which works you mean, uh, what you have in mind. Um, yeah. Books I mean with children in the circle of time, in the heap of time, oh, uh-huh. others uh-huh. Where, Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes um, 
that's literally true. I mean, I think of the history of uh, th th what we know about Chaco Canyon, where people felt for centuries that there was something magical about it, but only then recently discovered its relationship to, uh, to the sun and to um, solar eclipses, et cetera. So um, it's probably not a bad idea to think there's magic in there. There might be. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, there is another question. Jimmy. Uh, oh, hi. I would like to uh, mention another use of ruin that a distinguished lecturer gave a talk in this very room. It's uh, Norman Augustine about engineering disasters. Hmm. He talked about the ruin of the bridge because uh -huh. of the wind, the ruin of the Apollo moonshot that blew up in the air. And his point of this lecture, however, is You you've helped. So you helped me make a point that I took out of my talk that I wanted to make, which is that um, I mean it's also important to realize the distance that we have to these forms. I mean, it's like Kant's argument about the sublime that we can feel awe without being actually afraid, and so with some distance from a disaster like that, you could actually learn from it. I'm sure. Well, this is uh, one reason why I was very interested in this, um, this work on Pausanias' uh, attitudes, because we usually think that the big switch is around 1514 that Raphael um, starts to lobby or really campaign for the protection of monuments, and this early Renaissance um, sensibility about the protection of monuments begins to develop. But there always has been, not always, but since uh, the late classical, late antiquity, there's been an idea that there was something there to revere. And it does seem to be accompanied by knowledge. I mean, it's, you know, to, it's a lot easier to destroy something about which you're ignorant than something about which you know something. So. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Well, 
Well, there's a great interest in that, of course, by architects. I mean, in, I mean, it, it, the measuring ruins is a way of creating new buildings on the plans of old ruins. So this is something that uh, has a very long tradition. But there's a new book by Nina Dubin about these punning kinds of juxtapositions that I showed you in Robert. Um, and she is very interested in the way that it has to do with um, the a very interesting analogy to our currency with the financial crisis that happened in the in the 1790s and that this so sense of risk made people have a, a bifurcated consciousness about their aspirations always having a flip side of destruction. There's also another dimension that I find really interesting that there's an ethics in architecture. Now I understand that when you submit the plans for a building, you should also submit the plans and costs for its um, demolition so that you know what you're, you know, what you're getting in, into. So. And that's certainly a revolution in human <laughs> conscientiousness. Yes. Hi, Sam. Yeah. Um, to go back to the issue of nature, uh-huh. are we starting to respond almost to nature itself as a ruin? Or can, I mean, can this idea of, of ruination be applied to something like something that's actually not And so it's sort of it's ruined in the bad sense, but we don't tend to use any kind of there's no positive sort of valuation there. Yes, although um, I think that there is a kind of perverse um, well, perverse is not the right word to use, but I mean there's this a sense of beauty that we sometimes see in contemporary photography of ruined sites of various kinds, which might be environmental disasters or something else. But your question brings up a really important point, I think, which is the invisibility of that kind of ruination. I I actually sort of struggle to think what would I put on the screen for that part of my talk, and a junkyard is kind of an easy target. Um, But the truth is we don't look around and see junkyards everywhere, and yet our fingerprints are all over everything but often they're there in invisible ways. Um, so I don't see this kind of picturesque discourse being really uh, strong, but I could imagine that, given this tradition, that something like that could develop. Yes. Yeah, Leo. <laughs> I wonder about, um, aside the, the trend of populating ruins, or you, know, you, you, you in your engraving you have Mm-hmm. books of photographs of the industrial ruins. Yes, thank you. That's and, what the, and the countervailing mm-hmm. argument that what that ends up doing is excluding the sort of the story of the millions of people who actually still live in Detroit. Mm-hmm. The, the aestheticization actually mm-hmm. doesn't accommodate the idea that ruins are continually mm-hmm. inhabited, but insists often say, actually now this way that we like to exclude people from na- our pictures of national parks, mm-hmm. insists on this kind of exclusion mm-hmm. of, of human life. Mm-hmm. No, that's really key to the argument I wanted to make. That I mean, that we will, we would imagine that no one is there, but in fact, we are here. We're, we're in the scene. Okay. Yeah. Yes. One last question in the back. Well, your reference to the destructiveness of modern art and contemporary art doesn't that relate more to 
Well, I think this is a tremendously complicated thing because there, there are just as many artists working uh, with ephemeral processes in, in trying to, um, to create works that are not going to intervene in uh, the health and safety <laughs> of, of their fellow um, human beings. But I, I think there is, an, you know, there is a, something attractive if you're going to make a, a revolutionary avant-garde art and blowing something up or representing, I mean, if you think about the future, of representing the powers of machines, it, it's a very fundamental thing. But I think that's also quite a, a bit different, especially because of the speed of it, from this long, much longer tradition of melancholy uh, cont- contemplation of the um, destructiveness of time. Um, which, I mean, time is not destructive in itself, but that's the way we frame it, frame, frame that kind of phrase. Please, everyone, join me in thanking Susan. <laughs> <Not ending. laughs>